Hello everybody and welcome to the last class in Writing for Children, the Getting Published Week 10 class. I'm really sorry that I can't be doing this in person with you and I hope that you're sitting somewhere quiet where you've got the slides in front of you as before, downloaded from Moodle. And I'm just going to talk you through the slides and and add to them and explain what I mean. And hopefully you'll have the handout as well. Um, it's very sad that we can't share the last workshop and um, say proper goodbyes, but I hope you've managed to connect with each other in some way. And as I'll be talking about, that you'll be able to use each other as writing partners going forward, because no writer that I'm aware of can really write in a vacuum. We, we need each other to feed each other's practice and give each other the confidence to keep writing. So I'm going through the slides as I did for week nine. Um, and the first one just talks a little bit about some additional resources that you can have a look at um, with links to three websites. One is the ALCS website, which um, is uh, a body that helps uh, authors um, earn money from um when their work is photocopied and so on. And there's a really good post on the money, time and confidence that writers need to thrive, which also points out what average incomes are for writers and do see that they are very low. I am not advising that you give up your day job to do what you love. Writing usually has to be something that people do uh, in their free time. Um, it, there aren't that many people who can write full time these, de these days, very sadly. So do bear in mind what you want to get out of your writing and what you're prepared to put into it. And that article can help you think about that. Um, I mentioned synopsis later on, and there's a very good description of what to think about when you're doing that by Lee Weatherly. And here is a, a link to her blog post from Notes from the Slush Pile, which is um, was run by Candy Gourlay, who's one of the people on pre-published, the, the third link that I've given to you, um, the podcast, which I keep going on about. And that is because I have used the podcast to have deeper discussions about the kind of topics that I discuss in this course and others that I've run. And um, it gives you different perspectives on the kind of aspects of writing that I talk about, which I think is very healthy. So you don't just hear it from me, but you hear what other people do. Um, so hopefully you can get more depth uh, out of the various episodes in that. Okay, moving to um, the main slides. So I'll be talking about getting the manuscript finished, first finish that book. Um, it's really important uh, not to spend all your time thinking about agents and um, and submissions and things until you've got the book as good as it can get. And uh, I'll be giving you all sorts of tips about what to do about that. And, and this may seem obvious, but it's it's not actually. I, I know a lot of students, and, and me too, to an extent, um, after a while, uh, you can get so fed up with your work in progress that you start diverting your attention to publishers and agents and things. But actually, none of that is relevant until the work is finished and it's edited and it's good enough to go. So that's what you need to focus on first. Then there are different routes to publication. There are um, there's the the online ebook way and there's the traditional publishing way. I'll talk about that. Uh, and then the question is what you do next. And I think true writers on the whole. And as Stephanie Thwaite said as well, they want to write the next thing. So um, we'll talk a little bit about that too. 
Okay, so finishing that book. I talk about setting your goals um, and that includes the word count goal. Um, so what do you want to do? What kind of book or books do you want to write? Do you want to spend months or a year or a couple of years even just experimenting and exploring and deciding what you want to do? Or do you need to have something written within the next six months for some, some goal that you set yourself or some particular thing that you're trying to do? Is there a competition, for example, the chicken house competition that you want to enter that has a particular deadline? So have some very real, realistic goals in mind. That's always really helpful for moving forward. I find I'm very deadline driven and I really need them. And it might be that having set those goals, you need to set further goals. That's okay. But keep having a, a really concrete, realistic goal that you're moving towards. Finding your space can mean finding the table at the cafe that you always sit at or the place in your house with the best light, the best sound that works for your concentration. Making sure that you are really comfortable, not just constantly making do with something that isn't really adequate to you. Really devote space and time to thinking about where you need to be to write and how you need to be set up to do it. And the Goldilocks rule for the word count goal is don't don't tell yourself you're going to do 20 words a week because that is simply not enough to keep your creative juices flowing. But neither tell yourself that you're going to do 10,000 words in a week. Some writers, a very few writers can. Most solid writers um, will have a word count, even if they're doing it full time, that is in the low thousands for a week. Um, and, you know, if you write a thousand words in a week, then uh, in a year, you've got a middle grade novel. Um, so come up with some word count goal that will keep you writing daily or weekly. You really do need to keep it going. But um, that's achievable because if you're not achieving it, you're just going to depress yourself. That's an important thing. And have that word count goal up somewhere and ideally be able to tick it off and give yourself stickers if you achieve it. Uh, this is still what professional writers do. Um, it's important to, to have it there in front of you. And maybe to have friends who know what your word count goal is who can who can check with you that you've done it. Um, I've set, set you a, a link to a YouTube video called The Seven Habits of Effective Artists. Unfortunately, the guy who created this video wanted to effectively draw very dodgy, I would say, <laughs> drawings of um, of busty women. It's very bizarre what he, he thinks that he, he needs to do with his creative life. But anyway, however, the way that he approaches getting, uh, getting better at what he does is great. Um, I agree with the seven habits. So um, if you need to find different ways to encourage yourself to be creative and efficient and effective, then um, do have a look. Um, now, there's the next thing says art is pointless. And this is the next slide. And I really love this. So I'm going to read it to you. It is a sculpture by Jasmine K. Ui, and it is in the University of Texas in Austin, I think, at the, at the bottom of a flight of stairs. And if you read one side of it, it says, art is pointless. You have to go out, get an actual job and make a living. You can't just let the rest of your life be a joke, a failure. You will end up a starving artist to contribute to society instead of wasting time. You're worthless. Okay. And then if you stand at the corner of the sculpture and you read it, read two sides of it, it says this. Art is pointless without passion. You have to go out and create art. 
get an actual job doing what you love. Make a living by being yourself. You can't just let other people define the rest of your life and say you will be a joke, a failure. Follow your heart. You will end up happy and free, not a starving artist. Love your art and contribute to society by inspiring people instead of wasting time letting others tell you you're worthless. You can change the world. I really love that. It's very inspirational. Um, I would say when, when it says get an actual job doing what you love, I'd say do both. Get an actual job that pays the rent and another job doing what you love. Okay, going back to the slide before. Friends and writing groups, they are so important. Starting point, you. Um, I created a, a group with some students from City University that we, um, sorry, from uh, City Lit that we called the Masterminds. Uh, I heard today that one of them has got uh, a publishing contract. I'm so excited. She's got a book coming out in 2021. But they've they've been working for years together, meeting weekly or fortnightly to go over each other's work in, in very much the kind of workshop environment that we had in class. Um, so, um, yeah, you need to find other people who you can share work with. Um, Scooby, I've told you about on Facebook. You can have a look. Um, make sure that you look for Scooby BI. So the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, the British Isles um, part of it or the London part. There's a, there's a London section. And you'll find many published and unpublished writers there um, who run conferences and uh, meet up and share successes and failures and are very supportive many informal Facebook groups, WhatsApp groups, etc. If you can't find one, you can set one up. Um, you can do things like just create a shut up and write group, which I might have mentioned, where you and some friends just agree to meet up in a cafe. Uh, it could be, well, obviously not now, but um, and again, now that we're all adapting, it can be an online space where you agree to meet up online at a certain time and you ignore each other and you just write for a set amount of time and that could be hugely helpful. Um, and another thing that is not on this slide, but I'm finding very useful at the moment is 20 or the 25 minutes. I have an app on my phone called Forest. Just double checking this. It's in front of me here. Um, yeah, called Forest. And um, what it does is it locks down my phone for 25 minutes. And in that time, it grows a tree. And while my phone is locked down, then that means that I'm focusing on the writing. And if you just give yourself 25 minutes, that feels doable. Um, you often find at the end of it, A, that you've achieved a lot and B, that you just want to keep going. So I highly recommend that as a method. You can do that individually or together as a group. There are courses and professional feedback. Um, Golden Egg Academy is one of them that was set up by my old editor, Imogen Cooper. Um, Emma Greenwood, uh, who worked with Imogen for a while, has set up her own called manuscriptfeedback.com. Cornerstones, highly respected. There's the Novel Writing Studio at City Uni. And Arvon, I would say, are the most highly respected people running residential courses, not just weeks, but also long weekends. Um, and there are others too. So there are lots of ways that you can get your writing looked at by professionals and you can also get inspired by professionals. Um, and all you have to think about is, is it going to be worth the money that it costs inevitably? And that's up to you. Sometimes it will be, sometimes it won't be. There are also the masterclasses that I find I'm constantly being advertised on Facebook. I don't know about you. And they're run by people like Margaret Atwood and Neil Gaiman. And I can't imagine that they're bad. I haven't done one yet, but they're probably very good. There's also Truby. If you look at truby.com, um, it's not writing for children, but uh, in terms of story and structure, um, 
Truby is uh, is a very good starting point for working out what you want to do. And Caroline Lawrence, who um, I did one of my podcast episodes with, absolutely swears by him. Okay, so you did all of that and you got your manuscript the way you wanted it and you listened to my editing thing last week and you put it in a drawer and you got it out again and you've edited it again and again and you've read it aloud and it's perfect. Okay, what do you do now? Well, what you do now is you consult the Writers and Artists Yearbook. One, It comes out every year and there's a Writing for Children edition of it. There wasn't when I started, but there is now. And that will list all the agents and publishers. Um, and you can submit directly to some publishers, not all. But um, most publishers uh, tend to prioritise work that they receive from agents. Having said that, if publishers find um, a, a piece of writing manuscript from the slush pile and they love it, then they they love you know they're very excited about that and that's great for you too. Um, it can be done, but it it is rare. Um, I mean, having said that, I got my big break by getting the, the winning the chicken house competition. So effectively, I was found on on their competition slush pile. Um, but on the whole, um, the way that most publishers get get new work is through agents, and so agents are going to be the people you apply to. Um, and so, as I say, they're all listed in the the Writers and Artists Yearbook in terms of what they're interested in and do have a look. So it might seem that there are millions of them, but, you know, that you narrow it down to people who are interested in the age range that you're writing for and potentially even the genre that you're writing for. Um, and by the time you've done that, then you might find that there are actually only a dozen or so, or maybe a couple of dozen who who are appropriate. Um, and then you have a look at their websites, you see if you like the look of them, you see if you like the look of the other books that they've published, that, that you know, that they've, um, other writers that they've got published. Um, and uh, you approach them on the back of that. You can also have a look in the acknowledgements of books you like. Most decent writers will acknowledge their agent. And so um, if you like a particular writer and um, you like their work, then it may well be that you'll like the kind of agent who likes that writer too. Uh, if you have joined Scooby, then there are conferences like York and Winchester where uh, agents do go and do quick sort of speed dating sessions with writers where you elevate a pitch to them. And that's a, a good way of meeting them and getting to know them a bit better. And honestly, a lot of the ways that, that agents um, start to take an interest in a writer is is through these kind of one-to-one uh, -one sessions that they run. So do look out for those. Um, some publishers like Curtis Brown have open submission days. Curtis Brown um, also run their creative writing workshops uh and they're actively looking for great writers through those. So that would definitely be a good place to start if you want to do more workshops. Once you've found the agents that you're interested in submitting to, follow the guidelines exactly. They will be very clear. They're usually online um, and they have good reasons for everything they ask for. And they're all slightly different. They ask for different amounts of stuff. They ask for it in slightly different formats. Some people want it attached as a Word document. Some people want it included in the body of the email. Whatever they say they want, 
do it that way. Whoever they say they want it sent to, be very careful and send it to the right person. I have accidentally sent it to an, an agent's wrong email address, as in kind of the one they use as an agent, but not the one they use for submissions, um, and, uh, and missed out that way. So do be very careful about that. And often people ask, can you do multiple submissions? Yes, you can. Agents would expect you to. You have to wait weeks and weeks and weeks sometimes for agents to get back to you. So you can't really be expected to submit sequentially. It would take years. So do feel free to submit to, let's say, up to half a dozen agents at a time. Um, but if any one of them gets back to you, which is wonderful and wants more, then let the others know, which is A, a good encouragement to the others to ask for more as well, and B, politeness so that they know that they do need to speed up their interest in you if uh, they don't want to risk losing you. Um, but don't submit to 24 all at once, because you'll probably find that in the course of the submission process, you may want to revise the work when you have a look at it in a new light, or maybe you get feedback. And once you have submitted, you've kind of shot your bolt. So um, agents, they certainly don't want you to submit. And then before they've even said anything for you to resubmit, saying this is a better version. They don't like that. Um, so once you've submitted, that's it. So you may want to, and in fact, this is what I did, did the last time really, is submit in dribs and drabs, learn from the experience of doing it, um, and then submit a slightly revised version to the next person. Okay, next slide. What they're looking for in this famous submission you're going to give them. Okay, they're looking for voice and they'll get that from the first three chapters or however much they've asked for. They're looking for structure and they'll get a sense of that from those three chapters too, but also from the synopsis. They're looking for storytelling. So make sure that the story does develop as you go along. Some of my students I found are constantly posing questions with the, the opening chapters of their writing and not making any progress. Um, you don't want to do that. So you don't want to be all backstory, but you don't want to be holding everything back either. You want the characters to leap off the page. You want the child's eye view commercial appeal for them. So how are they as publishers going to sell this in to bookshops? Um, have a think about that. It's really good looking at it from that point of view. Um, if you were the editor and you were trying to get Waterstones excited about your book, how would you do that? Who does it compare with? What gap in the market is it filling? All of that kind of thing. Make sure that spelling grammar is right. I think I, I told you about that last week. And give a sense of a willingness to work on it from your covering letter. Now, that's going to be short and I'll talk about it in a minute. But um, what you don't want is to seem really cocky, confident. I do talk about that. You do want to seem confident in your idea with your covering letter. But you don't want to seem so cocky that it comes across that you think it's perfect and, and the agent or the editor will have nothing to add because, believe me, they will have stuff that they want to add. Here are some more people that you might want to consider uh, doing more work with. I've got House of Editors here, Blue Pencil Agency, Daniel Goldsmith Associates. I haven't worked with any of them, but I have had um, writers tell me that they those, these are quite reliable. But always get second opinions, I would say, before you spend any money on anybody. Um, I've got a, a note here that says fees versus advances. Sometimes people are very confused by that. If you are lucky enough that an agent takes you on 
uh, and then time goes by and then they um, eventually uh, find a publisher who's interested, um, then what usually happens is that you will be offered an advance by the publisher. So they are paying you. Um, if you're being asked to pay uh, a fee to get your book published in some form, then to an extent that is vanity publishing. Um, so be very wary of that. Um, unless you're going through um, Amazon and the way that they do it, uh, it should be that you're getting money from the publishers, not the other way around. Okay, so this is the submitting section. How do you do it? Well, you're going to need a one-line elevator pitch, um, a synopsis, uh, a cover letter, and um, a sense of reality. Um, Stephanie, the lovely Stephanie, wrote a really good piece for Curtis Brown Creative called um, How to Submit to Children's Literary Agent, um, which she entitled We Want Writers, Not Bakers. And it just talks about some of the things that people have done in their submissions that are not a good idea. Um, and they include kind of bribery, sending cake, for example. You don't want to do that. Um, you want to send something that is very clean, very professional, um, but also exciting. So how do you do that? The cover letter. The cover letter is a cover email these days, almost always. This is important. It's the first thing that they see. I've got a whole slide on this and I don't think I need to go into that much more detail. Stephanie describes it too. But um, the biggest thing about the cover letter that I can say is just spend time on it. Make it good. Doesn't mean to say make it long. Just make the agent want to read the attachments, the other bits, um, because what you've said just sounds really intriguing and exciting and thought through. Um, and you've explained a little bit about yourself and now they want to find out more. The elevator pitch. Now, this may be included in your cover letter or it may not. It probably will be. Um, it's called an elevator pitch, if you don't know, because it is the way that you, the amount of time you would have to sell your idea to somebody if you were caught in a lift with them quickly. Um, so basically, you've got two or three sentences to sum up everything about your, your work and why it's amazing. And the thing I would say with elevator pitches is bear in mind who you're pitching to and what they might be interested in and see if you can somehow fit what you're saying to what they already know. So the elevator pitch for my book was, was extremely short for my last series. It was what if the Queen solved crimes? I mean, I was was lucky with this one in a way. So people know the Queen and people know detective fiction. So it was quite easy to come up with something that they could easily relate to and get their heads around. It's rare that you have something that you're describing um, that they can so easily relate to. So it's good to think that the first half of your pitch you've really thought about them and what they know and what they don't know and what they're interested in and what they're not interested in um, and how you can adapt your idea to something that will intrigue that person. Um, and then the second half is what's unique about your idea. So for example, if you're if you're writing about a refugee 
um, and then you've got this really intriguing, complicated plot, um, your elevator pitch might start with the refugee crisis um, and perhaps something that's maybe even that's been in the news recently that will that will engage their interest. And, and then the second half of your pitch will be what you've done that is that is particularly different and unique in that field. And in your submission, you'll be asked for a synopsis. Again, um, the slide kind of covers this. Um, synopsis should be quite short uh, and it should explain the whole, describe the, the arc of the whole story, just the main points of it. And really, it's just to show that you know how to structure a story, which hopefully after this course you do. Um, I like to think about it in three acts. Um, and it applies, as always, just as much to a picture book as to an, a young adult novel. Um, and yes, you do need to give a sense of what sort of ending it is, um, even if you don't give it away completely. But it's very the synopsis is not the same as a blurb. So it's not all about, oh, intrigue, I'm not going to tell you what happens. No, it's I am going to tell you what happens because you want to know that I can structure a story properly. So this is how the structure works. Okay, a couple of um, classes ago, um, Holly Tonks came. Uh, she was my my old editor at Tate Publishing. She's since moved on. And um, she talked about what an editor is thinking about when looking at a submission. So this is what's come from an agent or potentially come from you. And I think it's very useful to know where this goes and what editors are thinking. So here we go. The first thing they're looking at is, is it a well-constructed proposal? So if you've got an agent, obviously they'll have helped you on that. Um, but already, you know, an editor is a busy person. They're going to have to sell your idea, your manuscript to the, the people within their own large, probably, company. So um, is it put together in a way that it's easy for them to explain it to? Are they excited about it? Do they believe in it? Has it really engaged their emotions in some way? Um, now, you, you can never know whether you're going to do that or not, but at least make it possible for them to be excited about it. Then the next thing, does it fit on their list? It may well be that it's a brilliantly constructed proposal. They're really excited about it, but for some reason they've already got something just like it, or they've decided that next year they're just not going to do anything like this. And this happens a lot in publishing. Um, so, you know, with my series that, that that I've now sold to, I don't know how many countries it is, it didn't work for lots of people lots of agents and lots of publishers for these kind of reasons. It didn't work for them. It did work for other people. Um, so don't be disheartened if somebody says that. If you get to the stage where they say it doesn't fit on my list, you've already almost won the lottery because you've got somebody in publishing who who does believe in what you're doing um, and is sad that, you know, it just doesn't fit for them. But that really means it might very well work for somebody else. The next one, is there a readership? Um, again, that's something you should have already thought about is, you know, are there the readers out there for this kind of thing? And and if there are, but it's hard to, um, it's not obvious who they are, then perhaps in your cover letter, you, you might want to um, convince whoever you're writing to that the readership is out there. And then the next thing is, will it make money? Uh, it needs to because it's expensive to edit a book, pay for the editor and all of that. And um, 
and the, the copy editor and the proof editor and then all the printing that needs to go on and the storage and the marketing and the cover designer. And if you're going the traditional route, a publisher will be paying for all of that. And if you're going the e-publishing route, you will be paying for all of that and you want to make that money back. So how are you going to do that? Will it make money? And they have to be very hard-nosed and commercial about that. Um, Holly kindly shared um, this, which is probably from Nielsen, which is um, the children's books that made the most money in 2018, I think, not all of which were actually published in 2018. As you'll see, there are a lot of picture books on here, um, a lot of old books on here. Um, and it takes a long time for uh, for writing to sort of penetrate up to the to the top of this um, this scale a long time or a viral video which is why wonky donkey is at the top and we we talked about wonky donkey and as of um, the end of 2018 I guess uh, it had made over a million pounds which is quite impressive so you've written your book you've submitted it to agents, uh, you've got some interest, but let's say you haven't actually got an editor to say, yes, this is for me. Well, this may not be the book. And if you're a writer, that's not the end of the world. Now for JK Rowling, um, the, um, the first agent that she wrote to, Christopher Little, took her on. Um, but it was only the 12th or 13th or 14th publisher, Barry Cunningham, who thought Harry Potter was the one for him. Um, but it was her first book. Mallory Blackman um, had written many books and had had over 80 rejections by the time she became a published author. And of course, now Noughts and Crosses is on TV, on primetime TV. Um, and she's been the Poet Laureate. So it's worked out for her eventually, but she went at it for years. My first book, which I think I might have mentioned, was called The Body of a Dancer. I absolutely loved writing it. It took just a few weeks one summer. It just poured out of me. I, I really, really enjoyed the process. It has never been published. And nor was the one after it and nor was the one after it, and nor was the one after it, and nor was the screenplay after that. Um, do you want to publish this story, or do you want to get published? I wanted to get published, and I kept on going until I did. Now, self-publishing is an option. And if this was a writing for adults course, I would say absolutely seriously consider it. It is the tipping point that we're reaching right now where indie publishing, as it's so often known, um, is a very respectable, profitable, useful way of going. It requires a vast amount of your time in marketing. It really, really does. It's something you have to go at like a professional. Um, but it can be very rewarding. But I have yet to hear of more than two or three people who've made a success of it as children's writers. One of them is Karen Inglis, whose book, which I have here somewhere that's not called, is it called The Secret Garden? I think so. if you look up Karen Inglis on Amazon, you'll see it. It's always astonishingly high up in the charts. Um, now, Karen, I think, makes a lot of her money out of teaching people how to self-publish rather than the actual books themselves. I 
I've read the book. It's perfectly nice. There is nothing special about it. I think Karen's genius is in her marketing rather than her writing skills. Um, and if that's the route you wanted to go down, then fine. But most children still read and share books on paper. Most adults who buy books for children want to buy them on paper. They they may well get Kindle to sort of back them up and it changes a little bit as they get older, but not as much as you'd think. Um, you might expect, you know, 13, 14 year olds to be um, buying young adult books largely on Kindle. They are reading on Kindle uh, and on, you know, on their phones and stuff, but um, the vast majority of children's books as of now are still being sold in paper format. And for that reason, um, you really want to go down a traditional publishing route if you possibly can, because paper books need to be stored. You know, they, they need to be physically printed. And um, and that is a very complicated way um, of doing things unless you have a publisher to do it for you. And if you're publishing paper books, bookshops, it's changing a little bit, not very much, but bookshops tend not to want to... Uh, stock them unless you're going through a traditional publisher or you are uh, a local author perhaps who has some extra sort of feature to you that means they might be able to shift copies. Um, so I would suggest that yes, you you still do pursue the publishing route. This may well change. Um, it, it's, a, it's a constantly um, shifting set of goalposts. Um, and as I say, self-publishing is getting getting better, getting more respected, um, finding new ways of reaching readers. But yeah, still not there for children's books yet. No workshop. Um, okay, so that's all the big stuff, I think. Um, I've just got a few, uh, few last slides to go through. Just checking the time here. Um, okay, so the writing process, three tips to think about while you're finishing that book. So there are two different ways that you can write, and I've tried both. One is writing in extracts. So writing scenes as they come to you and when they're very vivid in your mind, and then writing around those extracts. And I've tried that. Or linear writing, where you start at chapter one and you work your way through to the end. I'm doing a little bit of both with the book I'm writing now, but it's mostly linear. And what I found is if I write extracts, it's okay. But when when I come to fit them into the story, I have to almost rewrite them line by line so that they fit with themes that have emerged in the writing process and a vocabulary that has been used and ways that characters express themselves. Um, so I found that for me, linear writing is the most reliable way. But if writing extracts is what fires your imagination and that's what works for you, then that can be another way of approaching things. Next thing to think about. This often gets lost, I find, in the writing process. Once you've got your plot in front of you and you're juggling all the things in your head you have to think about to get from the beginning of the chapter to the end. But what the reader will be looking for is what does the main protagonist want, need, feel on each page? And also what has changed 
or is going to change. So when I go and do chapter um, draft two or draft three of my writing, that's what I'm really looking at. And I'm just thinking about scenes I've written now. I'm not sure it's clear enough yet. What does the protagonist want and need and feel? Because that is where the reader's head will be and that will be what they'll be focusing on. Uh, another useful thing to bear in mind is never announce the plan and execute the plan. So if you've got a complicated plot thing going on, I, th I always think, think this is really fascinating. It can feel really um, a good, good fun thing to do to describe something that's going to happen when everybody's sort of getting together and thinking about it and then describe the way that it goes. But for readers, once they've got the plan in their heads, they they've kind of they're done with it. So the only reason you would announce a plan and then describe what happens is if it if it doesn't go according to plan. Um, if what happens does go according to plan, then then pick. You can either describe people plotting it or you can describe the way it happens, but don't do both. Other do's and don'ts. Don't have too many points of view. Don't start with an adult's point of view. Um, and don't really start with complicated world building or backstory. Um, how does the main character come alive? If you think about Star Wars and all the backstory that they could have included and all the world building that they needed to do, they started with the plans and the escape and the robots getting off the ship Um and something that was full of adventure and excitement and cuteness, in fact. Um, and then once we were all really intrigued and entertained, then they started to fill us in on this bigger world and why things mattered. Do create a flawed main character with a profound need for something they don't yet have or know they need. And do, as we know, let them drive the story. Don't let adults do it for them. And my last exercise for you is this. Take 30 minutes or 25, maybe get Forest on your phone and set the app up and give yourself some quiet time. And in that time, what you're going to do is you're going to set out what your writing goals are. Now, this is not going to be writing so much as, you know, several sheets of paper and plotting and planning things out and whatever, whatever way works for you, spider maps or bullet points or doodles whatever it might be so you're going to set out your writing goals set out how you see yourself as a writer and a couple of sentences about you that you might want to submit to an agent one day and then if you are working on a particular work in progress or two or three at the moment then what would be one line pitches for them so have a look at those things and then if you have time within your 30 minutes or maybe at the end of it, see if you can condense that into a physical page that you've got in a notebook somewhere or in a file somewhere and, and keep that so that you can come back to it and you can remind yourself of what it is that you want to do. Um... I've got a recap here of the various things that I've talked about, but hopefully now you've got all the slides to remind you. Um, I would love it if you can send me any feedback about the course. And I, when I um, send you the link for this, I will also include a feedback form if I remember. But either way, 
do um, get back to me and let me know about things that have worked well this time and things that have worked less well because I do adapt the course each time based on the feedback that I get. It's very useful stuff. And City may well send you... um, Uh, feedback forms as well. I don't see those. um, So I can't use them to adapt the course for the future. So it always helps me if you can send me feedback direct. Um, So thanks very much for that, if you can do it. And I wish you all the very, very best of luck with your writing. Let me know how it goes. Please stay in touch. Um, you should be able to do it through my city email address or you can find me on Twitter. It's always a good way of finding me um, or possibly through Facebook and, and other ways or, or my my website. Um, all of those emails come direct to me as well. So I shall be looking out for you and do keep me up to speed. Um, and thanks for doing this course. Bye.